Will you pray after me? Dear God, thank you for this morning, for this time to be in your presence, for your word which teaches us, for your blessings that overwhelm me. Come and be with me in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have heard of the phrase, the one. I don't know if you're familiar with a Matrix movie series, but uh, Keanu Reeves played a character called Neo, and he was the one. Meaning he was the one who was to save the people from the machines who had enslaved them. This phrase, the one, is usually given to those with supernatural powers who have a responsibility, a great responsibility, to save the people from a great predicament. As we come to Matthew chapter 11, we're going through the the Gospel of Matthew. Remember what I tell you, we're, we're, we're going to think of ourselves as disciples of Jesus. We're walking with Jesus and we're going to say, what can I learn from Jesus just like the disciples learned? I'm walking with Jesus. He's teaching. He's sharing. What can I learn as a disciple of Jesus? And so we look at Matthew 11, and today we're going to see that Jesus is indeed the one. The one come to save us from our sins. The one come to, to restore us to who God created us to be. For all who put their faith and trust in Jesus. You might remember back when we were talking about John the Baptist, and John the Baptist, remember, was baptizing all these people. And because he was doing that, some of the people started following him. They became disciples of John the Baptist. Now, of course, John the Baptist's role was to prepare the people for what? For Jesus, right? For Jesus' coming. So once Jesus came, John was trying to point them to Jesus. But there are still some who are following John the Baptist. At one point, John the Baptist challenged King Herod. See, King Herod divorced his wife and married his brother's sister. Not a good thing, right? And so John the Baptist called him out. Now, as a king, you don't th- kings don't like to be called out, right? And so he had to show a sign of strength. So King Herod put John the Baptist in prison and was contemplating whether or not he was going to have John the Baptist put to death. So you can only imagine that maybe John... The Baptist was in prison. He was thinking about his situation. And we read in Matthew 11, 2, When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples. He probably was thinking about his eternal being. He was thinking about the the presence of where his soul would be if and when he was killed. And he had he knew about Jesus, right? He knew about Jesus, but, but he had maybe some doubts. He wanted to be sure that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who would save him from his sins, the one who would give him eternal life. And so he sends his, his disciples to go to Jesus, and they ask Jesus this important question in verse 3. And read, and whenever you see yellow, please read with me. So let's read that together. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? See, even the most ardent believer, from time to time, will have doubts about their faith, right? You'll, you'll have these thoughts, is Jesus really the one? Is Jesus the Messiah? Is Jesus the one who saves me from my sins? 
I'm sure this question was as much for his own disciples as it was for him. Because when he was gone, he wanted to make sure that his disciples were following Jesus. In fact, he was constantly pointing them to Jesus. You know, we can fall into that trap too, can't we? Sometimes we revere our pastor and we think, you know, high and holy of our pastor. Thank you if you do that, but, <laughs> but it should be Jesus, right? It should be Jesus, not me. It should be Jesus, not someone else in your life. We shouldn't revere anyone. We should only revere Jesus. We shouldn't follow anyone. Only Jesus. We shouldn't be a disciple of anyone. Only Jesus. And John the Baptist wanted to make sure that his disciples knew that. If you've ever had a conversation with an atheist or someone of another religion, you probably notice that it, it could be quite challenging to have that conversation with them, right? They're set in their ways. They have their worldview. They know what they believe. And so you start to talk to them about Jesus, maybe even share with them about the, the miracles of Jesus. And yet, even in the midst of all of that, they, they don't necessarily have an open heart and mind toward what you're telling them, right? It can be challenging to have that conversation. Well, this was true even back in Jesus' day. And we read in Matthew eleven four to five. There we go. Matthew eleven four to five. Jesus replied, "This to." I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. I sorry. Um, take a step back. I'm on the next point already, so we're going to step back. Um, a lot of times, maybe we're talking about doubting your faith. Sometimes we doubt our faith, and it. Things in life can come upon us, right? They can come upon us and they can challenge us. They can, they can cause us to maybe have some doubts. Maybe, maybe someone you've, you know has had a loss of a child. There's nothing more difficult than losing a child. Or maybe you lose your job. Or, or maybe you're having financial struggles. Or maybe you have this, this great health issue that you're dealing with. And people come to me in those situations and say, Pastor, is Jesus really my Messiah? Is Jesus really my Savior? Is Jesus really there to help me in this time? And Jesus' words here, in his answer to John's question, I think give us a great answer for those who ask us that question as well. It says this, Jesus replied to John the Baptist's disciples, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. You've heard the uh, adage, talk is cheap, right? Which basically means you can say anything you want, but that doesn't make it to be true, right? Jesus could simply have said to John the Baptist's disciples, yes, I'm the Messiah, tell John he has nothing to worry about, he can believe in me, all is good, Right? But that would just have been words, in a sense. And John could have believed that or not. It would have not given him any proof whether or not Jesus was truly the Messiah. There's another adage that says, the proof is in the pudding, right? Which means that once you try it or experience it or use it, then you can see if it's true or not, right? Is there proof of this to be true? And Jesus says, I'm not just going to give you words. I'm going to show you the proof that I am truly the Messiah. And so his answer is, 
Look around you. Look at what I've done. Look at the miracles I performed. The blind have received sight. The lame now walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. What amazing works Jesus has done. The power of God seen in and through Jesus, through his miracles. I have done these things so that you can know that I am the Messiah. There are many who say that Christianity can't uh, be proven, but I think we see right here in Jesus' statement that Christianity can indeed be proven. That the, the faith we put in Jesus is well-placed because of the works of Christ. The dead being raised from the dead. The lepers being cleansed. The blind being able to see. The deaf being able to hear. Your life being changed. My life being changed. That's why our story is so powerful. That Jesus comes upon us and transforms us. Not only to make us better people, but to make us followers of Christ. To make us more like Christ. To love like Christ. To forgive like Christ. To be like Christ. Christ. That is the transforming power of God. That is the testimony that we have that Jesus indeed is the Messiah. Jesus says that the good news is preached to the poor. And he makes this emphasis because at that time, the poor were looked down upon. How wonderful it was when the, the news was preached to the poor and they believed and all of a sudden they had this different standing in God. They were seen as wonderful and worthy and capable. How amazing their lives changed when they went from being poor to being mighty and powerful in God. To do the works of God. Can you imagine a changed life in that way? And God does that all the time. He changes our lives and he takes us from who we are in our sin and he makes us renewed people. He makes us the people he created us to be. We become these amazing people doing the works of God and transforming the world with our lives. We truly have that capability. Each one of us have that capability to transform the world around us for the kingdom of God. And so we see that Jesus is the one who is the Messiah and saves us from our sins. He is the one. Now, going back to my conversation or my statement about uh, talking with atheists, talking about others from other religions, talking about those who kind of have their worldview set. It's challenging to have a conversation and tell them about Jesus and have them say, yes, I'm going to believe in Jesus and I'm going to go away from what my worldview is now, right? They say that once you pass about the age of 17, that your worldview in many ways is set, and it's difficult to get someone to change their worldview, to change their way of thinking, to have a different kind of thinking in their life, to understand that Jesus is indeed the one and only Savior of the world. And so those, those conversations can be challenging, right? But Jesus talks about a time, even back in his day, when it was difficult then as well. Matthew 11, 20 to 24. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! 
For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will, be, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Now the challenge for us as you look at the scriptures is that we're not actually told what miracles were performed in Chorazin and Bethsaida. But I don't think it's difficult for us to understand. I mean, we go back to, to Jesus' answer to John the Baptist, right? He talks about the, the blind receiving sight, the, the lame walking, the deaf hearing, and the dead being raised. I'm sure many, if not all of those miracles were performed there as well. But the challenge was, is in the midst of those miracles being performed, in the midst of Jesus being in the presence, the Son of God being in the presence, doing these amazing works, in the midst of all of that, they did not believe in Jesus. And in not believing, they were not living their lives as God created them to be. We must understand that people are judged not only for what they have done, but also according to what they could have done, what they should have done, how the missed opportunities that we've had. God gives us opportunities, and when we miss those opportunities, we don't faithfully serve God, we get judged for those as well. God calls us to do great works he wants us to step out into trust and faith. We need to faithfully do that. In the Gospel of John, we're told about, John writes about Jesus' miracles, and he says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The miracles of Jesus were done for the purpose so that people could see the power of God, the glory of God, the wonder of God, that they could see that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah, come to save the people from their sins. And so in seeing these miracles that they would believe, that's why he performed these miracles. That's why he allows you and me to perform miracles, so that people can see that he is at work in us, that he is real and true and alive. When people don't have Christ in their life, and they come to that time of judgment, the judgment will be great, because Christ cannot shield them from the judgment which must come upon them. Ultimately, they cannot be in heaven with a God who is holy when they come before God in their unholy state. Only in Christ's cleansing us from our sins can we be made holy in Christ so that we could come into the presence of a holy God and live eternally with him in heaven. We talked a few weeks ago about not judging others. We shouldn't judge others. We shouldn't look at people's lives and judge them. Even if we share Christ with them and they don't respond, we shouldn't judge them. It's not on us to judge them. But we can let them know that there will come a time when judgment will happen. And that if they have Christ, it will make all the difference for them. So we see that Jesus 
is the one who judges us all. Let me give you an important teaching here. We will all be judged. Christians and non-Christians. All of us will be judged at Judgment Day when we come before the Lord. But here's another important teaching. Those of us who have Christ in our lives, we will be judged not guilty. Not guilty. But those who do not have Jesus, they will be found guilty. Romans 8, 1-2, Paul tells us, read the first part with me, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. It is in Christ that we are set free. It is in Christ that we do not have condemnation, that we are not condemned. We are found and not guilty. But without Christ, we do not have this blessing. We do not have this shielding from the guilty judgment. How easy it is to get, get into heaven. Simply ask God to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you, to be your Savior, to be your Lord, and receive Eternal life starting now. And yet so many choose to not believe this. Well, at this time, I'd like to invite Christian forward. And a Christian, our seminary student, our youth intern, we are excited to give him an opportunity to, to take us into the next part. Thank you, Pastor Chris. So, as Pastor Chris was mentioning, um, judgment is inevitable. Um, it's either God will say, well done, good and faithful servant, or he's going to say, I never knew you. And with Christ, that's when um, we can surpass that judgment. So besides judgment, there's also the inevitability of suffering. As we live our lives, um, Jesus said that there will be trials, there will be tribulations that we have to go through, um, but he is our advocate and he'll be there for us when we call out to him. So before we get into his most famous saying of, come to me all you who are weary, we need to look first into um, the verses that occur prior to that. So starting with Matthew chapter 11 verses 25 to 26, hear the word of the Lord. At, the t at that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So what Jesus is saying here is that his teachings were hidden to those that were um, full of pride, like the Pharisees, the religious leaders, those that were consumed with their sin and didn't want to repent like what Pastor Chris was just mentioning, right? But instead, his teachings are revealed to these infants, these children. And what does he mean by that? So in Matthew 18.3, later on, um, Jesus talks about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He says, Truly I tell you, unless you can change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So humbling yourselves to the point of being a child. And children in Jesus' time, they had little to no rights. They were just property of their parents. They had to 
be subservient to their parents. They didn't really have any rights. And besides them, Jesus would always advocate, advocate for the poor and the marginalized of society. So when we think of the term poor, it's not just economic, like, oh, how much money do I have in my wallet? Or how much money do I have in my bank account, right? It could also be spiritual poorness and also physical poorness. So when we think of um, Jesus healing the demon-possessed, like the Gerasene demoniac in all the Gospels, and when he confronted the woman at the well in the book of John, He's reaching out to those who are spiritually poor, those that are weak spiritually, that are stuck in bondage. And then also we see his physical healings of those that are poor physically. So think of when he healed the blind, the lepers, the woman that was bleeding for a bunch of years, right? So all of us, we're all poor in different ways and are in desperate need of Christ who reveals himself to us when we humble ourselves. So looking at the Old Testament, we could see how humility is what God favors. Being humble is what God favors. So looking at Psalm 138.6, it says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he perceives from far away. He regards the lowly. And then if we look at Proverbs 3.34, Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he shows favor. Showing favor to the humble. That's what God does. Moving on to verse 27, it says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So it's like a tongue twister, right? Like Father, Son, Son, Father. Like, what is Jesus talking about? Like, or is he the same as his father? Or is he different? But basically what Jesus is saying, he's asserting this close relationship that he has with his father. That they are indeed in relationship with one another. They're connected. They're interdependent. And in order to know God, one must know Jesus first because, as John 14, 6 says, he is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father except through him. So with that, so Jesus is just showing the two parts of the Trinity, Father and Son, how they're connected with one another and dependent on each other. And if you don't know Jesus, you can't get to God. Right? And then we finally get to our favorite verses of chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. It says, Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Amen? Like, you could just like sigh after hearing those verses, right? He gives you rest. That's what Jesus does. So, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but Jesus loves agricultural references. He loves talking about farming and a lot of his teachings. So think of like the parable of the mustard seed, parable of the sower. Uh, we talked about it the other week, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. This is all like farming references. And the reason why he talked about farming references all the time is because that's who made up most of society during that time. So he's relating to the people. He's relating to those um, who are living 
in his uh, living in that period of time. So are there any farmers in the house? Any farmers that know how to plant stuff and no. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> how about gardeners? Nice. Gardening. Awesome. So for my gardeners, do you guys have like oxen in your backyard that <laughs> are just like hanging out there eating your grass and stuff? No? Okay, cool. <laughs> so Jesus talks about this thing called a yoke. Not egg yolk, like Y-O-L-K, but Y-O-K-E. <laughs> and I'll explain it for a little bit if you guys don't know what it is. So basically it's this tool that farmers use where it's like a stick and then it holds two oxen together. And these oxen, in unison, they do different tasks like plowing a field or they could be uh, like carrying like heavy stuff. And um, as they're doing it, they're walking together, they're walking in unison, they're distributing the weight so it's not too tough on both of them. So as Jesus talks about this yoke that is easy and this burden that is light, so when it comes to our lives, when we toil for the kingdom of God, when we work um, as God's servants, as we do our calling, as we fulfill our calling on this earth, um, there's going to be trouble. There's going to be stuff that we go through. There's going to be suffering. Um, but Jesus here promises to give rest to all the people that come to him. Philippians 4, 7, it says, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, we get the peace of God. We get that peace that we all desire. 1 Peter 5, 6-7 says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. So as I was talking about earlier, this whole thing of humbling yourself and being exalted. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The God that created you, the God that loves you, cares for you so much that he knew you when you were in your mother's womb. He knew you, he knows you by the hairs on your head. He knows you from head to toe, everything you're gonna go through, everything you've been through. He knows you so personally. And he cares so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come down to earth to die on our behalf so that we might be reconciled to God the Father and be forgiven of our sins. So we have that ability to cast our anxieties, our worries, our doubts, our fears to Jesus because he cares. So my closing question for you all is, which yoke are you using right now? It's either you could have the yoke of the world that leads to sin, failure, and disappointment. Or do you have the yoke of Jesus Christ, which gives rest for your souls? Which heavy burdens in your life do you need to lift up to the Lord and to others within our community? So as we enter into the Christmas season, some may find it to be a joyful time, while others might find it to be repulsive because it's like, oh, I have to go to the mall and like, there's going to be long lines and everyone's crazy on Christmas. But let us remember with thankful hearts that the one and only Jesus Christ humbly came down to earth as a baby in a manger to save us from the forces of sin and death and give eternal rest to all who believe in him. So God wants to give us rest from our burdens, from our lives. He wants us to experience rest.
He wants us to rest in the Lord. To rest in the Lord means that I let the presence of God be upon me and within me and to wash over me and to give me that peace that the Christian was talking about. It reminds me that Christ is with me at all times and in all things. See, we cannot do life alone. We, we need even more than people in our life. We need the very presence of God in our lives. And we can only get this when we spend time with God, with God's people in worship like this. When we spend time with God's people in Bible study. When we spend time with God's people in prayer. You know, I talk about this a lot, but it's so true. It's in Bible study and in prayer and in worship and in fellowship. And we're together with God's people that God's presence is with us even more pronounced than when we try to seek God on our own. The presence of God is what we really need to receive that rest that we so desire in our lives. So we see that Jesus is the one who gives us rest and restores us from our weariness. A friend of mine gave me a letter that he received uh, a while back, and I wanted to close our time reading a portion of this letter to you because I think it's so powerful and profound. It says, Recently in our couple's Bible study, we were discussing how we came to know the Lord. I mentioned I used to work with this guy who was a Christian who recommended I listen to Focus on the Family, where I heard this pastor, Rick Warren, talk about his church, Saddleback Community Church. Then I went to check it out, and voila, I made a commitment to Christ. All because a friend at work was faithful and sowed the seed. I shared how I didn't know you were a born-again Christian at first, when we first talked and worked side by side. All I know is you seem to have so much more joy than the average person. You really loved your wife. So if you ever wonder, am I making a difference in this world? You already have. Listen to this. Because of you, I know the risen Savior, and so does my husband. And so does his mother, who recently died and went to be with the Lord. And so does my grandmother. And so do two of my nieces. And so do many more. My husband and I have had the privilege to witness to, to many over the years. Thank you for being faithful in the little things. P.S. In the spring of 1987, I, you know, I said it was a while ago, I was so depressed and I felt my marriage, although only a year old, was crumbling. Since then, the Lord has transformed my life and my husband's life, saved our marriage, challenged us in our Christian walk to seek first his kingdom, and now we have been counselors at the Billy Graham Crusade, back always, and my husband attended Promise Keepers. What a difference. Amen. Jesus is the one who is the Messiah, the one who pronounces judgment on all. Jesus is the one who gives us rest and restores us even more. Christ gives us forgiveness and cleansing from our sins and gives us salvation. This is the gospel we believe. This is the message we have. This is the testimony we need to share. We need to sow this seed, because we never know who it's going to touch. How amazing that that person not only touched the person he shared with, but 
his wife and his mother and grandmother and nieces and all these people were touched by Jesus because of sowing the seed with one person. That is your call and my call. Let us pray.